to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. These stories were recorded in front of a live audience on August 20th, 2018 at Payomet Performing Arts Center in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. The theme was torn. All right, let's bring our first storyteller to the stage, Jerry Riley. Torn, twisted, broken, busted, hanging by a thread. That was us. Uh, many years ago, my wife and I were foster parents. And we fostered lots of kids, some for a night, some for a week, some for a month, some for longer. And we were doing it for a couple of years, and we got a call. They had a three-month-old baby. Her name was Alyssa. And, uh, and she, you know, we took her in, and, and she was with us. Now, every summer, we come down to the Outer Cape. Uh, for the last 30 years, we camp at Payne's Campground in Wellfleet for the whole summer. So she was about five months old, and we took her camping for the summer. And immediately, we got this great routine, which was as soon as she woke up in the morning, uh, as soon as you hear something, I would grab her up out of bed, let my wife sleep, get the bottle out of the cooler, head to the general store, get a coffee, and we would be on White Crest Beach within about five minutes of her opening her eyes. And we started every day that way, with a bottle and a coffee on the beach. It was kind of a cool thing. Uh, the next year, she was still with us, and she was a year and change. And now we're, we're, we're camping with a, you know, crawling toddler, and we had the, the high chair at the campsite, and keeping her from eating pine needles. And, you know, the next year, she's like two and change, and uh, now she's walking and talking, her personalities come out, and she's kind of, she's funny, she's smart, she's feisty, she's fearless. Um, and we have a great time, and, you know, playing in the waves, and dashing in this and that. And then we got a call. We get a call from uh, DSS, uh, Social Services, saying that um, she was going to go back to her father. Now, the situation was her mother was totally out of the picture, and her father, um, you know, she would visit periodically, but nobody thought this was a good idea. We didn't think it was a good idea, and nobody in social services did. But he had crossed every T, dotted every I, and they were sort of powerless to not, you know, uh, reunited with the father. So they called us up and said, two weeks, she's leaving. Um, now, you know, and said, well, this gives you time to, to sort of deal with it. Well, there is no time. You know, what can you, you know, how can you deal with this thing? The day came, we got in the car, we drove her to Sagamore Bridge, and we handed over our baby at the Friendlies to the so social service, uh, to a, a social worker. Now, I, I, you, you know, you can't imagine. Well, you, you just how do you ha how do you hand over your baby to somebody? But how do you hand over your baby to somebody when you know where they're going is not going to be a good thing? It's going to be a bad thing. Uh, but that was it. We had no choice, um, and we would probably never see her again. We turned around. We drove back to Wellfleet, and that night we were did something really stupid. We went out to the bomb shelter, and drank our sorrows away, and it ended really badly. Uh, we were torn and busted and broken and hanging by a thread. Uh, probably the worst moment of my life. We stopped fostering after that. But a year or two later, remarkably, we decided to get back on that horse, 
go on that roller coaster again. So we started fostering, and, and, and kids came, and they went, and whatever, and then we got a call one day, uh, a six-month-old baby, uh, Jayla, and she came, and we came down camping, and, uh, and every morning, she was, uh, you know, under, under, you know, nine months old, we had the bottle and the coffee on the beach at Whitecrest Beach, and the next year, we had the high chair and the crawling. And the year after that, she was walking and talking. And, uh, and she was, her personality emerged. And she says, brilliant and smart and funny and great kid. And then we got a call from DSS. And this time they said, she's going to be uh, up for adoption. So we adopted her. And uh, she's now... A 15-year-old, wonderful, accomplished, smart, funny, beautiful young woman, and uh, the joy of our life. But in the intervening years, about 12 years after we dropped our baby at the Friendlies, we got a phone call, and it was the social worker from all that time ago. And she said, uh, Alyssa is back in Massachusetts, back in foster care, uh, up in Haverhill, she's been there for a while, and he just sort of found this out and put it together. And we said, "Well, can you, you know, reach out to her?" Uh, and she, and the social worker did, and we got a phone call. Now she had no recollection of us. She left when she was two and a half. It was kind of a brave thing to call these strangers, and we reconnected. And uh, now we see her. We brought her down camping in Wellfleet last summer, and uh, she was stunned to meet all these people who knew her from when she was a baby. Um, and in two weeks, she started in college. Um, and she's been through a hell of a 16 years or 17 years, um, but we think, uh, I think she's, she's gonna come out okay. And I think, I'd like to think, those uh, summers on the Outer Cape are one of the things that kind of made her anchored and strong. That's it. Thank you. It's Kristen Knowles to the stage. <laughs> Never in my life did I doubt whether or not I wanted to have children. I wanted to have children. What I didn't have was a plan or the right man. So um, when I was 34 and I finally settled down, I was gung-ho. It was time to do that baby thing. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> My mother was also on board, which may not surprise you. and. After we got married, the two of us started putting things away just here and there for the baby's room. Four years later, the baby's room was filling up, but I still had no bun in the oven. And what that led to was medical intervention, driving to Boston all the time, and trying to figure out how I could possibly make this work. I was looking at the big 4-0 looming on the horizon. I was almost 40. And 
after the third time I received a phone call from the fertility clinic saying, we're really sorry, but your last in vitro didn't take, and unfortunately, you're not pregnant. So, right after I received that phone call, I said to myself, I'm gonna do something different right now. I'm gonna pick up the phone book. I looked up the number of a place I had driven by thousands of times, and I made a phone call. And I said, hi, I'd like some more information about adoption. Two weeks later, we had an appointment at Good Hope Adoption Services. And I didn't know anything about what we were getting ourselves into, other than the fact that I had worked at a school in Brewster for adolescent girls who have emotional and intellectual disabilities. So I had a pretty good background in what it might look like if we were to adopt. So <clears throat> they recommended that we adopt a child from Kazakhstan because that apparently was a place where the orphanages were um, quite good and pretty much most of the other countries in the world had said that Americans couldn't adopt from there anymore. So it was like, okay, well, that sounds good. And um, by that fall, we were on the road to adopting a child. When you apply to adopt, you have to uh, specify what you want. And although we made sure they, they knew that it was always open, what we had asked for was an infant, a female, as young as possible. And the reason for that was because I had worked with kids who had been adopted, who had come from really bad backgrounds, who had had a really difficult time of it. And I knew from my training that when Children are in early infancy. That is the most critical time for their brain development. And I knew that reactive attachment disorder is probably the hardest diagnosis that you can come upon as an adoptive parent. So we asked for an infant as young as possible because the older the child, the more likely that that child may have reactive attachment disorder among other diagnoses. So one day the phone rang and it was the adoption agency and they said, we've got your referral. We've got something for you here. Let's just tell you about it. And I said, okay. And they said, well, it's not an infant and it's not one. But of all the families that are waiting, we think you'd be perfect. And I said, okay. And they said, it's a boy, four and a half years old, and a little girl, two and a half years old, and they're siblings. And I said, okay. And she said, well, why don't you drive down to the agency right now and, and um, get your husband, the two of you come down and take, take a look at the pictures and um, we'll talk about it. And I said, okay. And so we went and we saw their pictures and we said, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, what do we do? What do we do? Should we do it? I mean, one of each, an instant family overnight, wow, amazing, or should we wait for an infant? But then we wouldn't have to potty train that would be nice. 
We were so torn. But we said, yes, we'll do it. We're going for it. So <clears throat> after that call, I had three weeks to get ready. And so uh, we were flying to Kazakhstan at the end of the month of January. And uh, I had a lot of work to do. So um, there was a, a room in the house that we called the baby's room. Had a lot of stuff in it that we had accumulated. And uh, I had been avoiding it. I went in there. And I got some bags and some boxes, and I started putting away all the stuff that we would never need. These kids were older than that. And then I saw one box that I had forgotten about. It was a Christmas present that my mom had given us a couple years before in expectation of the baby. It was a tiny turtle. It was a, it was a stuffed turtle with a tiny turtle on its back. And when I picked it up, it made a noise, like there was a bell inside. And I thought, oh my god, what is that? I, I didn't know this was a musical toy. And so I was messing with it, and I, I turned the little turtle on top. And it turned out that it was a music box. And it started to play the song, you are my sunshine, my only sunshine. And then I completely fell apart. And I cried, and I cried for that child that we would never have, that child of my own flesh and blood who I was no, not able to, to give birth to. And then I laid down, and I fell asleep. And my husband found me there the next morning. On June, no, <clears throat> on June 12th was the first time that we ever went to the adoption agency. On March 28th, nine and a half months later, we landed at Logan Airport with Jack and Sasha, sister and brother, and um, they became our children. And this journey was so much more than anything I could have ever planned for or anticipated. When you wake up one morning and there are two, two little people standing before you, you look into those little faces and you think to yourself, oh my God, I'm it. I'm their one big chance at a whole new life. That was really big stuff to, to get through and um, The first gift that Jack ever gave us when we went to the orphanage was a picture he had made the night after we met him for the very first time. And it was a painting, a bright yellow painting of the sun. And I looked at it and I said, maybe there are no coincidences. And so to my children, who are here tonight, I just want to say from the bottom of my heart, you truly are my sunshine. Svetana Hedushka. Svetana. Here I am, standing in the middle of a half-ruined building. 
feeling the freezing wind that makes me shake. The information sign that lays on the ground beside me is the only thing that reminds of what was the purpose of this place. Information Center for Tourism and Culture at Blagovgrad. I was proudly answering any time somebody asked me about my workplace. My career here started a week after I graduated from high school. <laughs> I can still feel how the fear in my stomach was just bumping around. Will I be able to do that? Am I skillful enough? I'm only 18. Can I help all of the visitors? <laughs> Today I'm just laughing at this. Three years after that, I know that that was pretty silly. And I was doing a pretty good job there. I'm looking around and I can still see all of the ideas we applied to make our little cabin a most welcoming and cozy office. I see the posters on the wall, the flowers on the tables. I see the mini library and the photo exposition. All of this I called my art corner. I can still go through all of the stories that the visitors were telling me. Where did they come from and where are they going? I was traveling the world with their stories. <laughs> A project for the renovation of the downtown area made us remove the type of a kiosk office space and move it to an another place. That's fine, I thought. We might find a better place for ourselves. And yet, right now I'm observing the complete demolishment of that place. This was the final decision. A week ago, I locked out my castle for the last time. My fortress walls are already gone. The place where I was feeling most confident and free doesn't exist anymore. Here I am, standing in the middle of nothing, feeling as devastated and torn as when my first boyfriend told me he wouldn't date me anymore. I didn't know a workplace can break up with you but I guess here I am closing another chapter of my book. A chapter to remember, a chapter I love. Jill Teitelman. Okay, hi there. Um, this is not a long distance, very long distance travel story, but it does take place in Northern California. Uh, my son was almost six months old 
my cousin was getting married. I had to go to the wedding with the father of my child, to whom I was not married, my partner at the time. That part was fine. My parents were going to be there. All the relatives were descending upon a, a motel in some place, Northern California, pretty scruffy, outside Point Reyes, pretty funky, really Northern California. Uh, these people are making their own currency, you know, they're, they're into it, they, their own cemeteries, the whole thing. Um, I love my cousin. So uh, the problem is that my, my father and my, the father of my child do not get along at all. Uh, we are not married because I'm not sure I get along with them that well either. But uh, we have a really wonderful child, and my parents are thrilled about that. But the few times I've, I've introduced them, has, things have not gone well at all. Our first date was at a, a Sammy's Romanian in the Lower East Side. It's a restaurant where you have chicken fat with, and um, it wasn't a good evening there. And and uh, and it hasn't gone well. And my dad sort of says it like it is, and I respect him and all that. And he was right in a lot of ways. But anyway, there we are. So I said, please don't put my room right next to my parents' room. So they said, okay, well, we were one room away. Okay, so I'm just pretty nervous about this whole thing. So nervous that after we unpack the rental car to get everything in our room, I go back out to get one more thing and I lock the keys to the rental car in the trunk. The car is locked. Doesn't sound so terrible to you, but it's Saturday. The wedding is the next day, and the wedding is about four miles away, and no one in Northern California can get this car open, and my, the father of my child does not want to go in the car with my parents the mile to the wedding. <laughs> so I say, okay, I will figure this out. Now the problem is there is a locksmith. He will come to the motel. He will open the car for me for an, I won't tell you how much. I don't remember. <laughs> it, it did not matter. Uh, but if my father finds out that I have locked the keys in the car of my rental car, he will go crazy and he will make fun of me the entire weekend. So that's why I can't go with my, so, okay, so I figure out that there's gonna be a, a breakfast early Sunday morning and I got the locksmith coming at, he can come between 10 and 11 and the breakfast starts at 9.30. This is the scene. I am outside the motel hiding behind a cactus bush <laughs> waiting for the procession to go to the brunch area, waiting for the rental car van to come and pull up, get the car open so that I can ride in the car with my partner, my child, go to the wedding. My father will never know. The partner, my, my, father's, my child's father will be happy and we'll have a wonderful time. That is in fact what happened. I did pull this off. The wedding was wonderful. What I forgot to tell you was, in my panic, I, I, I called my cousin, who was getting married that day. 
and she's had a lot of adventures with me, and usually she's taking care of me in some disaster. But I didn't know what to do because I couldn't find, I didn't know where there's a locksmith, and I called her and she said, I am putting on my wedding gown. You have to figure this out for yourself this time. <laughs> so the whole weekend I was torn between my father, the father of my child. I was not torn at all with my, between me and my son. There was nothing torn between us. Everything really worked out extremely well. As you may have imagined, the relationship did not last. Thank you very much. James Shannon. James Shannon. I got a call from, uh, uh, text from Vanessa. She said, I want to come and tell a story. And I, so I came up with one. But then I heard this woman, Kristen, the, the adoption story. And I was like, shit, man, I got this killer adoption story. So I'm going to leave. I'm torn. <laughs> I'm torn. So I'm going to leave it to you. The adoption story where I go to China with my ex-wife to help adopt a, a child during a SARS epidemic and I get uh, appendicitis. Or, or I'm, uh, I get a job in an uh, adolescent treatment center in Boston for the worst cases. These kids are the, they're the, they're just the worst kids ever, this treatment center. And I'm a counselor, and I take them on a whitewater rafting trip and camping when I wasn't supposed to. That one? Okay. So uh, I was dating this woman in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and we were living together anyway. So she left and moved back to Boston. She got a job in this uh, residential treatment center in, in a suburb of Boston, working with these kids who were the worst kids in the state. And it was kind of a radical treatment center. It was very gestalt. And there were no, it was just a house in a nice little community. And no one else seemed to really know what was going on there. And there were no bars or locks. Like, the deal was, you come to this place, and these are the rules, and this is your last chance. You fuck this up, you're going to lock up for the rest of your life. And somehow, she got me in there at a job as a counselor. I had no training whatsoever other than being similar to a lot of these guys. <laughs> so I took the job, and uh, so here I am, privileged white boy, you know, trying to get down with the inner city kids. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, it turns out I was really good at it because even though I came from a totally different background, um, we had some similar experiences. And I really kind of just ID'd with these kids. And as it turns out later in the game, much too much, and I had to get the fuck out. So after about a year of being there and doing very well, I thought, you know what these kids, you know, I got into my savior mode. I thought, you know what these kids need? Five or six days in the White Mountains camping and then a hellacious whitewater rafting trip. So I went to the uh, director, this really cool guy named Neil from the inner city, born and raised in uh, Roxbury, ended up there as a client, and then years later came back. Now he's the director. And I, I said, Neil, I want to take the kids 
And he said, well, look, you got to call DYS and make sure it's cool to go to New Hampshire. Okay. So I called DYS. Turns out it's not cool. You can't leave the state. Okay. So now I'm torn. <laughs> and then Neil, the director, Neil, said, so had you know, did you find out? I was like, yeah, we're good. Good to go. So we went. I arranged the whole thing, right? We get up into the White Mouse. Now these kids, one of these kids killed his whole family. Uh, another kid shot and killed two people on our train, but they couldn't prove it, and they wanted us to get it out of him. His name was Queasy. He weighed 300 pounds. He was 15. He looked like he was 90. I mean, these are some scary kids, but I don't know. They didn't really scare me. I don't know. There was something that I, I, anyway. We get, to the, we get to the White Mountains, and none of these kids, have, they've barely seen trees. <laughs> we get there, and you have to hike like five miles to get to the thing, the place where you camp, right? So we go, and we get there, and uh, <laughs> by that night, the fire's going, it's dark, and we're exposed. We're sleeping on these sort of wooden platforms, and suddenly they became children, you know? Like they were the kids they never got to be. And I told stories and I don't know, it just, there was a real shift. And we did that for four or five days, just hanging out in the woods, making shitty food, uh, you know, throwing sticks, fishing. And then the last day was the whitewater rafting trip. And they were all like, you know, snapping their mental gum, like, yeah, right, this is scary. I'm like, dude, this is no bullshit. It's going to scare the shit out of you. Yeah, okay. So they're all in the raft. There's like 12 of us. And the woman who was in charge of the raft, she was a state trooper, right? And <clears throat> you could tell she was like, what exactly are you, people? So, you know, it starts out always, in, you know, whitewater rafting always starts out easy. You just, and they're all like, yeah, psh. and she's telling them all the shit that they got it. And she's like, look, we're coming up to the first bend, and you can start to hear this rumble, right? Now she's like, look, stay in the boat, and when I tell you to turn, you know, paddle left, you paddle left. When I tell you, and they're like, yeah, yeah, okay. We come around the bend. And it's like, yeah, some decent shit. It's like, I don't, I don't know, I'm not a raft guy, but it was, you know, white water. <laughs> and uh, all, all of a sudden, I look, and these, every single one of them, scared to fucking death. And this one kid, Charles, this little skinny kid, he, he was a nut. He was sitting right next to the state trooper lady. We come around the bend, we start hitting the rapids, and she's barking the orders, and he just spins around, whacks her in the head with the fucking paddle, out of the boat she goes. And I'm like, shit, this is not good. The director's gonna hear about this. So, you know, so I guess I'm in charge now. And uh, everyone's, doing nothing. The, the raft is just spinning. Everyone's like, oh shit, motherfucker. <laughs> Hitting rocks. Finally, it chills out. And this lady, you know, she's a pro. She's got the, 
you know, we're all like vested up and she's just kind of swimming along trying to catch up <laughs> to the fucking raft. <laughs> Finally, she gets there, you know, we, we help her out. Can we help you? <laughs> w- would you care for a beverage? So she gets in and, uh, you know, we get to the end of the thing and <laughs> the trip was over. So. We get back, right? But here's the thing. We're all in the van. You know, we've been out there for five, six days. And um, we get back to the, to the uh, I can't say where it is, but it's, we get back to the place, the treatment center. And there's just this feeling, you know, uh, with all me and these boys. And Neil, the director, he's like, man, at Looks like it weren't. I mean, these guys, because normally I- during the day to day operations of this place, we would probably have to restrain at least one kid a day because they would go off, you know. And for the next week, nobody went off. You know, they were just kind of riding this thing and, and, and they would keep talking about it. Hey, you remember that time? And you remember when Charlie knocked the fucking <laughs> state trooper and he didn't get arrested? So um, a little bit of time went by, and then Neil called me into his office, and he said, uh, so I just, he said, yeah, it looks like it went really good, man. I was like, yeah, Neil. He goes, you know, uh, he goes, I knew you didn't get permission to do that trip. And I just said, fuck it. That's what he said. He said, I just said, fuck it. Let him go. And we did, and uh, it was great. Nobody got in trouble. It never got back to the big wigs. And uh, yeah, that's the story. Although I think you should have, the Chinese story's good too. <laughs> but, uh, wait, 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 wait. I gotta, I gotta leave you with this. To do the binds. To do the binds. <laughs> Nobody getting this? Who's getting this? To do the binds. To do the binds. Okay, thank you. Please welcome Judith Stiles. I raised three children in New York City, and each each one of them really loved sports. Soccer, hockey, baseball, basketball, you name it, they played it. And I spent a lot of time watching, just watching my kids play sports. And one year, I got really lucky. My son had a very handsome soccer coach. He was Portuguese. And after one of the games, he came over to talk to me. And he said to me, he said, I I coach a women's soccer team, and do you play? And I just blurted out. I said, well, yes, of course I play. I play soccer. (laughs) And I I was 48 years old at the time. And... He said, great, see you Sunday, 10 o'clock, bring your cleats. And when he, when he walked away, I thought, ooh, that was a bit of an exaggeration on my part. Um, the last time I played soccer, I was in third grade, uh, standing in goal for the boys. When the boys couldn't find a goalie, I stood there in a dress. And that, that was the extent of my experience, but I, but I really wanted to play. I was 48 years old. I'd spent all this time watching my kids, 
and I wanted to play. So I, I borrowed my eldest daughter's little shin guards. I got all dressed for soccer. And I went down on Sunday, and I played my first game in the Urban Soccer League. And I was terrible. I was, I was really terrible. I was so bad. I was so embarrassed. It's so much easier to watch soccer than play soccer. And um, my coach, uh, Coach Manny Dalmeida, that handsome Portuguese guy, he, he was very nice to me. He, he didn't say anything about how I played. He just said, Wednesday we practice. See you there. And that, that began this, this wonderful period in my life when I played soccer with women in New York City from all over the world. And it was like the United Nations of, of women playing soccer. And it was perfect for me at the time because I had just been diagnosed with profound hearing loss. I had had pneumonia and I lost all this hearing. It's just, you know, it's not profound at all. It's just a polite way of saying, well, you're practically deaf, so. Uh, um, and the reason I loved the women's soccer was because it was 18 women together on the field for 90 minutes, not talking. Just like an occasional swear word, but no talking. And I, I didn't have to try to figure out what everybody was saying all the time. So I loved it. And uh, I got to know my coach, Manny Delmeda, a little better. He, he, invite, he invited me out for coffee one day, and I found out that he was a devout Catholic. He was a very spiritual, religious man. And he, uh, he talked to me a lot about uh, Jesus. And, uh, you know, I was raised a Unitarian, and we never talked about Jesus. <laughs> uh, we, we did, what we did in church was, like, we would read Robert Frost poems, and we would <laughs> sing folk songs. So I was very, very curious about Jesus, and this was my chance. And so over coffee, he's telling me, about turn the other cheek. And I thought, that, you know, that's a concept I never understood. I, I grew up in a family of hockey players and turn the other cheek was just not in the program. <laughs> and so, so I, I, I loved listening to him and I, I listened very carefully when he told me about turn the other cheek. I wanted to know what that really meant. So two years into playing soccer, I got a little better and I was 50. And I heard that the Bronx Irish Women's Soccer League was looking for players. And so I, I went up to the Bronx, way up to Van Cortland Park. And I figured I qualified because I'd married this Irish guy, John O'Hara, so I could play. And <laughs> it was wonderful. Except there was one problem in the Bronx League. It, it was, was kind of rough. And they had a lot of red cards and slide tackling. But I, I stuck with it. And there was this one player named Mara on the other team, the Harps, and she didn't like me. She was very big, and she did not like me. She would find me in the game, and she would slide tackle me and rough me up. And one day, when the referee was turned around, Mara comes up from behind me and punches me in the back, just like out of the blue, punches me. And I'm, I, I, I have this moment, I, I don't know what to do. I have. I'm torn, I have, I have Jesus in one ear saying, turn the other cheek, just turn the other cheek. And then I have my hockey playing brothers in the other ear saying, punch her back, punch her in the face. <laughs> so it's like, I didn't know what to do. So the referee looks away and I give Mara a mighty shove and I shoved her to the ground 
and it felt really good. <laughs> it was great. And I had stuck up for myself, and Mara never, ever bothered me again. But, I, you know, the next day I felt really guilty about it. I, I felt like I'd never learned anything about Jesus and turned the other cheek. <laughs> and so I, I go to find Manny, and I want to talk to him about it, but instead he invites me to go to Catholic Mass with him. <laughs> so I think, great, Unitarian girl goes to Catholic Mass. This will be good. So I, I'm, like, hoping that the priest will say something and I will have a very spiritual experience and I will have maybe I'll have an epiphany or maybe God will tell me why he smote me into deafness and I go to mass and there's just one problem in mass the priest mumbles he mumbles so I, I'm like missing everything and I, and I can feel that we're getting toward the end of mass and the big sentence is coming the big moment and the priest he says something like this these aren't his exact words but he says and Jesus came down from the heavens, and he said to the people, <laughs> and his, vo his voice drops, and I, and, and I missed it. I missed the, the big half of the big sentence, and I couldn't hear it. I missed the punchline. I missed my epiphany. So walking home, I felt very bad about it. I was like, what did Jesus say? What did he say? So I decided to make up my own ending to the sentence. And my sentence went something like this. And Jesus came down from the heavens and he said, you know, turn the other cheek is overrated. <laughs> and it's okay you shoved Mara, it's really okay, she's fine. And I know you as a Unitarian have a lot of trouble with the Ten Commandments. You just, you like, get to number six, you can't remember the rest. Most people get to three, they can't remember. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you out here. I'm going to give you one commandment, just one thing. It kind of covers everything. And you remember this, going forward in life, you'll be fine. And that one commandment is, do no harm. Do no harm. Going forward in life, if you could remember that, you'll be fine. We have Eric Stoll. So the thing in my life that has torn me up the most so far is the not untimely, not sudden death of my parents. My mom had dementia for several years and uh, she really didn't know who she was and if she knew who you were, she thought you were there to kill her. And all about all I could do is I had a little puppy at the time who was a very gentle dog and I would bring her up and she would pat him and that would be the visit. So when on the morning of my dad's 80th birthday when he decided to let her sleep in and then he tried to wake her up and she didn't wake up, it wasn't really a hard decision for us to make. She had had a massive brain hemorrhage. Um, we decided not to do anything too dramatic. And the doctors at the hospital told us, you know, it would be a couple of days. And that couple of days turned into a week, a couple of weeks, and she went from 
emergency room to hospital to hospice. And then we started asking ourselves questions like, why is she fighting so hard? Why is she trying to hang on so much? You know, somebody who had been very practical and had made it very known to us that she didn't want to have to do with any of this kind of thing. So after that, my brother and I really needed a break. So we went out to the cemetery to look at the burial plots. And uh, while we were there, we kind of got waylaid by a salesman who was trying to upgrade us to, in, to um, above ground burial. And he gave us one of the hardest sales pitches I've ever gotten for anything. And it was all about how, you know, you drop your loved one into the cold ground and they get eaten by, by worms and there's like worms coming through their eyeballs and how could you do that? To and so my brother and I kind of were like, um, okay, we'll think about it. And uh, we went out to the car and started getting into the car and the guy comes running out into the parking lot like we had left something very important in his office and he's like, I can't let you leave in good conscience, I can't let you leave because you drive down that driveway right now and turn out into the street and God forbid at that point something happens to your loved one and she passes, the price doubles. <laughs> so with my dad, my dad was okay and uh, you know, he loved to do things. He was, you know, getting up into his 80s, but he loved spending time with his grandson. And, you know, even when he could barely walk, he'd call me up and be like, I, I got theater tickets for tonight. Be here in half an hour. <laughs> and he had a blood clot. You know, at that age, you, you expect the sort of twice yearly trips to the emergency room. And, you know, he went, we went to the emergency room. They checked him into the hospital. He got better. They were about to send him home. They said, you know, you're a little anemic. We're going to give you a transfusion before you leave the hospital. Something happened during the transfusion, and he aspirated, and the conversation changed from going home to putting in a feeding tube. And the most horrible thing about that whole period was that, you know, they wouldn't let him eat anything. They wouldn't let him drink water, and he was really thirsty, and we were sitting by his bed, and we just could not give him water. And they just gave him this little gel that we could put on his gums, which really didn't do anything. And so we're really anxious to get this feeding tube in. And, you know, three days pass, and they say, it's okay, you know, we'll get him into the lab. And then there's a hurricane, and, and they're moving patients in from other hospitals, so it's five days, but five days is okay. And then it becomes eight days because there's an accident with a school bus, and they need the lab for the kids from the school bus. And eight days is still okay as long as it's less than 10 days. And then it's 10 days, and then it becomes 14 days. And finally, they get him into the lab, and for some anatomic abnormality, they can't do it. At which point, people start asking me, what would your dad really want you to do? Which seemed like a little bit of a silly question to me because my dad was still alive. He was very weak, and I sort of thought, well, you know, why don't I just ask him? So I went into his room, and he hadn't really spoken in a couple of weeks because he was very weak. And I said, you know, the, the, the alternative now is to do real surgery. You're very weak. There's a very high percentage chance you won't pull through it. And even if you do, it might only give you a couple of weeks or a couple of months. And do you, want to, do you still want to do it? And he really, I really saw himself pull himself together, and he turned and even lifted his head up a little, and he said yes in a very breathy voice, like, yes. But nobody believed me. My brother believed me. But the other people in the hospital were just like, oh, that you know, seemed to have the 
attitude that like that's kind of what you wanted to hear and you know we he hasn't spoken to us in a couple of weeks and they kept asking me the same question like what does your dad really want and I kept saying he just told me what he wants until I realized it wasn't really a question and the answer we want to do the most aggressive thing possible because I know he still wants to go to the theater and he still wants to spend time with his grandchildren was not an acceptable answer. And you know, I don't blame the doctors or the hospital because they were kind of just doing their job, which really does involve, to a large point, playing the percentages. And a man in his 80s is always gonna go to the back of the line. What tears me up about it though, kind of in both cases, is that I walk me, walked away from it thinking, um, at least I kind of learned some lessons about how I might handle the situation better the next time, only there was no next time because they were both gone. And I realized that um, if I'm really, really lucky for the rest of my life, the next time for me is gonna be me. Thanks. Jody Johnson. I want to thank Vanessa and Caitlin. This is an amazing thing that they have created on the Cape, and I look forward to it every summer. Okay, so my story goes, um, so when I first got here, I moved to the Cape 10 years ago, and um, the one thing that I was torn about most was um, the lack of really good Italian food. Um, I grew up near New Haven, Connecticut, which we had like Worcester Street, Little Italy, and Sally's and Pepe's, and um, Tony and Lucille's, where they would like throw plates on the table because it was the kids, the two daughters worked for them, and they would just like, there was no class at all in this place. They would just slam down the plates. What do you want? You want meatballs? All right, we'll get your meatballs. So I move here and I'm living in P-Town for about a month and a half and I'm like, okay, so we're gonna go out to dinner and I'm like, bread comes to the table and I'm expecting for that really nice, crusty, soft interior that you can tear apart. Not there, some kind of Portuguese bread or sweet bread, not having it. So continue on, I go to the deli, uh, at the top of the hill, um, Farlands, and same thing. I ask for some bread and, you know, some Italian bread. No Italian bread. I'm looking for the same Italian bread that I grew up on that's in the little white bag that you would go to the bakery and it would have, like, Marciano's or, you know, Luigi's or something, and it was in the, you know, red, white, and green package with, you know, in this little white sleeve. Wasn't having it. And so when I move up to Dennis, I find this Italian deli. I'm like, this is it, I found it. I go in there, I order an Italian sub and I'm expecting gabagol and salami and some brujute. No, it comes and I think it had bologna on it, some kind of bullshit white cheese. I'm like, this is not Italian sub. 
I am not having this. So now I move back to Provincetown and we go to Montano's and I don't want to put Montano's down, but it is not Italian bread that they bring to the table. I think they use pizza dough. It's not Italian bread. It doesn't have the crust and it doesn't have the tear. So I decide I'm going to go to the thrift store and find myself some books on bread making because I don't buy anything new. And I get this great book called The Wooden Spoon. Highly recommend this book if you're into bread making. Now, I have never made bread before, but I'm an amazing cook, I have to say, and I can make some slamming meatballs and chicken parm, but I've never made bread. So I'm like, all right, this can't be that hard. You know, like I'm a little full of myself when it comes to like baking. I can bake anything. I can make anything. And I'm self-taught at everything that I do. So I said, all right, I'm going to just start experimenting with bread. So the first couple loaves of bread that I make are just horrific. <laughs> They're like bricks. They come out of the oven. And I'm like, what did I do wrong? You know, I followed the recipe. But I got to tell you, bread is an art. To make bread, you have to have all the components right. The yeast has to be at a certain temperature when you bloom it. Otherwise, if, it's, if the water's too hot going into the yeast, you kill the yeast, it doesn't do anything. If it's too cold, it doesn't do anything either. So you're right in that sweet spot. So it's 105 to 112 degrees is the water. So you really have to be really careful about your temperatures. So I'm like, okay, I can do this. So I get some, now I'm thinking, all right, maybe I'll try to experiment with some like whole wheat and rye flour and someone that I work for um, uh, gets stuff from a co-op every year. So he gets these amazing grains and then he grinds all his own stuff. So I have this amazing rye flour and whole wheat flour that's been, you know, basically milled like a week ago. So it's totally fresh, really sweet. And so I experiment again and I'm going on and on and like these loaves are so bad. I literally am like throwing them out my back door for the wildlife because I'm not going to eat this bread. I'm a bit of a snob when it comes to food. And so I'm, 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 my pursuit is still there. I'm like, I'm going to master this bread. Now, take it, I, again, I've been here for 10 years now, and I've been making bread every Sunday for the past 10 years. And finally, I've gotten to the place where I can't say it's Italian bread, but it's pretty damn close to what I grew up with. So thanks, everyone. <laughs> Let us have to the stage Matt Cecil. Um, when my uh, oldest son, Sam, was uh, almost three years old, uh, a pediatric neurologist from Anchorage uh, came back into the room after examining him and told us that uh, he was healthy, he was happy, a uh, beautiful kid, um, and he was also profoundly autistic. And it was not a surprise. We weren't like, oh my god. He, we, it was quite aware, he's not speaking, uh, he's almost three, so that's a, that's a pretty big hint. Um, and so you're immediately torn with news like that between just anger, and he's so little that you don't know what's gonna happen with him, and there's still just this hope. So there's this, always, throughout this entire process, there are these different things kind of pulling at you from each direction. 
and with the hope, you know, like you just think, you just, you just get to work with these kids. Um, they need a lot of attention. They need to be on the floor with them. You need to force them to interact with you. You need to force them to look at you. You need to force them to do all this stuff. Um, and it's intense. It's incredibly intense. Um, and it's, it's nonstop. You're asking him questions when you don't need to ask him questions. He gets to the point where he builds contraptions to climb up into the cabinets to get things. Because if you ask him one more goddamn time what he wants to eat, he's going to go absolutely crazy. And the questions, always the questions. You're always like, do you want this or do you want this? What you, you constantly have to force them to interact with you socially. Um, not every kid, but, but our kid in particular. Um, so when it comes to all these questions and all these force and all these therapies, you really, you, you get to another point where you're kind of torn between just letting him be a kid um, and letting him, you know, like, and knowing very well that the more you force him to do these things, the better he will be later on. Um, and at 15 years old, I would like to say that we have some sort of like Hollywood autistic kid where he's a little bit quirky, but like crazy good at math. Um, or, you know, like he like he blinks and then he paints the Sistine Chapel from memory. We don't have that kid. I know they're out there. Um, that's not our child. Um, he's wonderful in many ways, but that's not him. And the questions are still hard. At 15 years old, you might not get an accurate answer to a yes or no question sometimes. Um, and it's, it's really hard. It makes every day-to-day -day life for him and for everyone else around him extremely difficult. And even things like going to the dentist um, become a nightmare. Um, and he's not one of these kids that, like, the noise freaks him out or, like, you know, like, like the light's too bright, like, he can't deal with it. None of those issues at all. He just has extremely poor communication skills, and it's extremely frustrating for him. So we get one of these hygienists, and the, the dentist, I will say, was not there, and she's wonderful. We've known her for years. Um, we get this hygienist who has just taken one of those courses, you know, like, like they have to require, like, how to deal with kids with special needs. Um, and a lot of the times, especially with these kids, um, you, you want to ask them a lot of questions. Is this too bright? Is this too, you want the purple one? You want the orange one? Is bubblegum okay? You know, like all these things. And that's, it's wonderful. They, everyone should be taking these courses. Everyone should learn as much as they possibly can about special needs kids. Our child, unfortunately, hates questions. And so she's asking him everything. Is this too hard? Is this too soft? Is that? And he is literally, like you can see his hands go first. They start to clench. And in his lap, keeping all of this under control at this point, is a half rat dog, half chihuahua that we adopted with the name already came with him, and his name is Mango. And he's sitting there, and the only thing that's making this work right now is that there seems to be some sort of therapeutic essence in this mouth that he licks our kid with that only has, he grew up as a street dog um, in the Dominican Republic, so he's only got about half his teeth, and the breath is abhorrent. Um, but for some reason, this rat dog with a limp and will eat anything because he was just throwing scraps his whole life, um, keeps him calm enough that the hygienist is able to, while asking one <laughs> stupid question after another, with all of us going, just clean, just clean his goddamn teeth. Um, so we're going through all of this, and it's getting worse and worse and worse. And I can see the anger building up inside, which is normally a very fun-loving child. And I'm thinking to myself, her hands are in his mouth. Um, this dog is on his lap. This is potentially not, they're sharp objects. This is potentially not a very good thing. 
and the dog is doing his job. He's a he's a like kind of a non-certified therapy dog. He's like a mud. I don't know. I don't even know what he is. Like he's not like. But we take him places, and it seems to help. Um, so people are cool with that. Um, so we get to the point where. You know, like she's just grinding, and he's like, and I'm like, oh my god, someone's gonna lose a finger. I'm gonna have to pay for her to go back to some other school to learn how to do something else or something. Something's gonna happen. We get through the whole appointment, everything is fine. Thank God for the dog. So we get to the end, and we're up, we're trying to schedule stuff, and of course, all this stuff, all the things that take so long, all that stuff, are, again, they just they kill him inside. I just wanna go outside, I just wanna look at my iPad, I wanna watch SpongeBob, get the hell out of my way. And we're getting to the point where it's just going back and forth, back and forth, and the hygienist comes back out, and she goes, hey, you know what else we talked about a lot um, was sign language. Do you know any sign language? She's like, do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? And of course, we did a ton of stuff like that with him when he was a kid. You do that with all kids when they're not terribly verbal in the beginning. And he, his face lights up, huge smile, the smile that I always love to see. And she goes, do you know what this means? Do you know what this means? And he smiles, and he looks right at her, and he goes, mm-hmm. And she's like, what? And he goes, fuck you. <laughs> Clear as day, very well understood. Not like, uh, I don't, uh, did he say fuck you? I don't think so. Is that like, was, did he say, tr is he like trucks? Is that what he said? No, it was full on, looked her right in the eye like he had been trained his whole goddamn life. <laughs> fuck you. So at that moment, you get to the point where as a responsible parent, I'd like to think that I am, you're kind of humiliated, right? But I grew up on the Jersey Shore, and so there's that other part of me that's, that's just kind of proud. And, you're, and you're, you're torn, you should be torn between those two. Like that should be, those should be the things on your shoulders. But at that point, at that day, I, I have to admit, I was not torn at all. Janice Summers. I have only told one other story, and so to be called to be a feature storyteller, I felt torn, because I was scared to death, and I thought, but I'm a feature, I should be here. So I said yes. Um, what I want to talk about is a continuation. My first story was about how I met my partner, and um, this is about, and now it's 27 years later, and we're, um, still dating and married a few years ago and um, things are very good. In 2007 she was diagnosed with cancer and um, it was a big deal and she had a slim chance of survival and she survived. So we went on a transatlantic cruise and to celebrate with some friends. And, but that was two years later after treatment. Then she was clear for seven years, but in that interim time, I got sick with cancer and she took care of me. So we thought, okay, this is all good. Let's go on a vacation again. So we went to Iceland. And then we, so it was like this kind of thing I like about my life is something happens and then I get a reward. 
you know, and, and that's the way it should always be for me. Um, so then she got cancer again, a different cancer. And it was the kind of cancer that they said, there's so many seeds of cancer that you'll probably not survive six months. So she went through six months of chemo and we went back to Boston to the doctor and the doctor said, you know, it's remarkable. You've healed all these seeds and now we can do the surgery that you weren't able to get. So she went from death row to in 24 hours having this surgery and being completely cleared of cancer again. So here's me up here, you know, like, whoa, I'm so happy. Whoa, you're gonna die. Whoa, this is great. Whoa, what's happening next? So we got into this thing of saying, gee, I thought you'd be dead by now. <laughs> and that's the, name, that's the name of my story tonight is, God, I thought you'd be dead by now. And her, yesterday was her 68th birthday, so of course I said that, you know, happy birthday, I did think you would be dead by now. <laughs> and it's so much harder to find something to buy for you because at this point in time, she can't walk. She um, has lost a lot of cognitive ability. She's still a Mensa, but, um, and she's still an artist, and she's, not, and she's a good artist, and she sells her work. And so life is still going on pretty normal for us, except as a caregiver, I'm the one, it's like being single. And you know, you gotta have to clean your own house and you're the one who's always doing the cat litter and you're doing all the shopping and, and Jesus, I thought she'd be dead by now. <laughs> I thought that, you know, because there's times when I actually, we talk about this, what are you gonna do after I die? And I think at this point, maybe I'm going first. What are you gonna do? <laughs> so this is the kind of life that we have. It's like one way, this way. So. A, Two years ago, she wasn't feeling well again, so we don't call the PC or her primary care anymore, we just call the oncologist. And he says, come on in, and we go in, and he runs some scans, and she's got brain cancer. And she gets this whole brain radiation. And throughout all the other cancers, each time she goes through the chemo, I, I don't know if this has happened to any of you who have had cancer or know someone, but they, the chemo creates an anxiety in the, that after chemo, she's more high strung. She's more, and she's a Leo, and I'm an Aquarian, and I'm the Earth Mother, and she's my complement. And so she's the driving, nagging pain in my ass who's really filled with anxiety all the time. She can't drive anymore, so she's like, oh, watch out for that car. And I'm like, shut up. <laughs> and she knows what she's doing, but she can't stop herself. And I'm the one who has to be always saying, I know you can't help yourself, but that is really fucking annoying me. <laughs> so she now takes it on as a challenge to me. We recently went to Utah and did all the state parks because she said, I want to do that. And I went out, so we flew out to Las Vegas, rented a car, and did the parks. But we both got the flu. And we were really, really, really sick. And 
it's okay for me to listen to her when I'm not sick, but when I'm sick and, I, and there's nobody around to take care of me, I'm like, I really thought you would be dead by now. <laughs> Who is taking care of me? And she would say things like, I need a pen. I, do you know where there's a pen? Usually they put a pen in the desk. Go look and see if there's a pen. And I'm in the bathroom, you know, and I'd say, I'll be right out. I need a pen. I can't do this Sudoku. Get me a pen. Jesus Christ, they put two Bibles in the drawer, but there's no pen. And I'm in the bathroom. So finally, I have to come out and say, I really thought you'd be dead by now, but here's my pen. And I heard the horn, so I'm going to stop right there. But every morning, when I awake and she's still in bed, I look to see if she's breathing. And... I think to myself, what is my life going to be like when she's not next to me breathing? And I am so torn. And I, every time I say to her, I thought you would be dead by now, it's like, I hope you never die. You just can't leave me. So I really wanted to share this story because she's still alive and she's still with me and she's still functioning and we're together. 27 years next, tomorrow. Tomorrow. Yes. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast. The Mosquito is produced by Vanessa Vardabedian and Caitlin Langstaff with theme music and editing by Jay Hagenbuckle. Find your next opportunity to join us in person by following us on Facebook and be sure to subscribe to this podcast for more stories. Remember, tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.